This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. Emails. Emails. Yeah. Emails. Hello. Welcome to another... <laughs> let's, let's, let's do it. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined by my colleagues Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein. Uh, it is spring again in Washington, D.C. Uh, the sun is shining. It's like 80 I degrees. I do not think it is spring. Definitely feels like spring. It's very warm. We were just outside. Oh, all right. Well, it's you may warm and sunny. Ezra has been here in the podcast cave for many <laughs> hours doing other shows. Uh, but I promise you it is frighteningly warm and sunny and There's also five days from the election. Yes, and I'm not mentally prepared for it to end. I keep I keep reading people saying they can't wait for this election to end, but I feel like it's it's like the only life I've ever known. <laughs> and I'm not I'm not prepared for this brave new warm. I'm ready for world. this election end, but before it ends, before it ends, uh, we at the weeds are going to talk through <laughs> one more time with feeling <laughs> the policy of this. Election. <laughs> so, th- th- what, what we want to do today. There's only five days left and no one has talked about them. I know. That is the point. What we want to do today is there's this amazing stat that came out of last week that the major network newscasts had devoted more time to Hillary Clinton's emails than to all policy issues combined. So, that is where we've been in this election. It has not been as weedsy as I think that we all would have preferred. And so, we wanted to pull out the frame a little bit. And really look at at these two candidates from the perspective of their proposed policy agenda, not how they would act in the White House, not just what they've said, not whether or not Donald Trump is reckless or Hillary Clinton is secretive. But really, what have – if you just take their proposed agenda seriously, what would they do? What would they do for the country? What would the country look like after their presidency if they were successful? Because I think when you do that, you get a, a fairly different view than the broad media narratives would show. And I think it's worthwhile starting here with Donald Trump because in some ways I think that he diverges the most. Matt, you you had a good piece on that this week. The main thing of the piece was that we've had very little coverage of Trump's policy proposals. And the coverage that we have had has mostly focused on his more unorthodox uh, views on trade policy, which really do differ from from most Republicans. Uh, And there's been almost no coverage of the fairly extreme sort of libertarian-ish agenda that focuses on the on the domestic economy. I mean there's a there's a real break with the free market consensus on foreign trade. But that has so colored all coverage of Trump. He's been relentlessly covered as this this populist candidate, this working class candidate because that's what he talks about and then in the press we talk about what he talks about. Uh, but he's he's proposing for starters a a tax cut that is broadly similar to the kind of thing Republicans have been running on for decades, which is to say it cuts taxes a lot. It cuts taxes for rich people a lot more than it cuts taxes for for other people. But it's about 
twice the size of the tax cut that Paul Ryan has proposed, which itself is twice the size of, of George W. Bush's tax cuts, complete rollback of financial regulations since uh, since the crisis. So we would go back to, you know, mid-aughts era levels of, of bank regulation. We would undo uh, the Obama administration's uh, climate change type actions. There would be a complete federal moratorium on new regulations of all kind. There would be a uh, block granting and cutting of Medicaid funding that's along the lines of what House Republicans have proposed. Um, similar uh, implications like that for for other kind of social safety net proposals. So, you know, we would be looking at if if Trump won and if Trump did what Trump says he would do. Uh, some of and the in these cases, I think it's worth noting what the Republican Party would want him to do. Yeah, I mean, exactly. If he has indicated not a deep personal passion for these policies, but a support for the policies that Paul Ryan has indicated a deep personal passion for and would have the votes to pass. So people would wake up, you know, a couple months into the Trump administration. We don't know what would be going on in certain other fronts, but on like a boring Washington policy front, you'd be waking up to a a real transformation in which uh, Social support for low-income people is very sharply reduced. Regulation of all businesses is reduced. Regulation of banks in particular is really sharply reduced, right? It would be an enormous win for, for the banking sector. Which is a note because people often seem to have a different impression of this. There was a fascinating Washington Post ABC News poll a while back showing the only place where millennials trusted Donald Trump more than Hillary Clinton was on bank regulation, right. which I don't think means millennials are a super financial deregulatory <laughs> generation. I think there's confusion about what Donald Trump believes here. I think most people do not think that campaign policy promises are important. I think the number one thing, difference of opinion that I have with people who I talk to is that I think, and I think the research supports, that people, presidents and politicians generally try to enact their stated policy agenda and they sometimes fail because of institutional impediments. But then an area like this where Paul Ryan says he wants massive deregulation of the financial sector and Donald Trump has on paper that he favors massive deregulation of the financial sector, I think that is what will happen. Conversely, I think that when Hillary Clinton says she wants somewhat tighter regulation of the financial sector, that is also what will happen. I think the way most people think about it, Hillary Clinton has many friends and political allies who work in banking. Uh, Donald Trump has a very poor personal relationship with major banks because over the years, they have mostly cut him off from loans because he has screwed them so many times by by defaulting, right? So, I mean, there, you know, there are stories going back to Trump in the in the late 90s and early aughts, and he wants to get loans for large-scale construction projects, and he can't. Um, Donald Trump doesn't like people who have wronged him in the past. So people are completely right to say that like at a dinner party, Hillary Clinton is more likely to have friends who work at Goldman Sachs. Uh, but their stated policies are are very, very different and and I think, you know, worth paying attention to. And people would People would be surprised, right? I mean, if Trump comes into office and he starts rounding up undocumented immigrants, some people will cheer and some people will be horrified. But everyone will say, we had a fair amount of talk in the campaign about Donald Trump's feelings about immigrants. We really did not have much talk about 
Donald Trump's plan for uh, to take hedge fund managers' income tax rates, cut them to 15%, and lift all regulation on their business activities. If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack, and if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food, and it's, it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great, and they're better for you. They're created with high-quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors, flavors, or sweeteners, so you can feel okay about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. they got great apples. they got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzel-y things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. That's a good opportunity to try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because NatureBox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com weeds. So you go to naturebox.com weeds. Uh, that way we get credit, you get 50% off your first order. naturebox.com weeds. You think through the scenario where if you do have a Trump presidency, like that is a very favorable scenario where presumably he is working with a Republican House and Republican Congress and these paths towards policy makings. Like you said, I think I generally agree with you that, you know, presidents run on agendas. They try and pursue those agendas. They're often stimmied by not having the political support. But if you think through the scenario in which you have a Trump president, presumably it is one where Republicans have a lot of control over policymaking in Washington. So a lot of these ideas that, you know, do exist in white papers that are like out there but don't get um, – discussed as much as as I was mentioning with some of these numbers, that those will have a somewhat clear path through policymaking. And one of the things I think we've missed, I think you guys touched on this a little bit, in a lot of ways, Trump is very orthodox Republican, sometimes more scaled back of um, of some of the folks he ran against in the primary. I was just looking at this um, tax calculator that Vox did earlier this election cycle, looking at how the candidates' tax plans would affect you. And just put in um, – it lets you put in, like, how much you earn and um, gives you a sense of how your taxes would change. I just put in $1 million for one person to be kind of simple. Man, you're doing great. I'm just – what? You're doing great. I'm doing, yeah, Vox pays <laughs> – if you'd like to work at Vox, who knows what could happen for you. Um, but you look at the Trump tax plan. Someone, someone who earns a $1 million would pay 123000 less under Trump, but they would pay 194000 less under Cruz. So in a weird way, like, this is, like, not the – edge of like the part like granted yes. like Cruz's plan like I think you can find Vox articles from a year ago now you know talking about how this has moved very far in a direction but this is not like out of the ordinary in a way some of the the policies related to immigration might be like this is like squarely where Republicans have landed. I, I think that's right. Although I do want to note that one thing that is a bit unusual about Donald Trump's plans is that there are ambiguities in them worth trillions of dollars. Yeah. And so I, I just do do want to say that it's a little bit hard to calculate the plan because they will tell you different things depending on the day. And so it can be – his plan can go anywhere from quite large but not the largest to – the craziest tax cut anybody has ever considered in American well, and politics. So it, it, it's worth being and it, it's like a very funny dimension specific of specific about what what this main ambiguity 
is, right? So so Trump's plan calls for a 15% corporate income tax rate, um, which is also what Paul Ryan's tax plan says is a, a fairly a, a consensus Republican plan. Um, that would be a, a very large reduction from the current 35% rate. But corporate income taxes only apply to you know, companies that pay corporate income tax. So you make your profits, you pay your tax, then you have the money in the corporate treasury, and then you can pay out dividends or, or whatever, and there's another round of taxes applied to it. Trump sometimes tells people that he would apply that 15% rate to uh, partnerships, which is the kind of thing where um, you currently just pay tax at the individual income tax rate. You don't pay corporate income tax at all in, in partnerships and other pass-through entities. Trump has told many people, but not the tax policy center, that he will apply the 15 percent rate to partnership income. I, I tend to believe Trump when he says he wants to do that because that would be a very big reduction in the tax rate that Donald Trump pays. Um, so I don't think there are a lot of areas of public policy where you can say, OK, Trump doesn't really care about this. He's, you know, he's trying to get people on his team, whatever, whatever. I do think that the aspect of public policy that most directly impacts Donald Trump personally, he probably does understand exactly what he's saying here and, and does mean it. It's not clear that Congress would go along with this. Uh, so, But one effort to model this says it would cost a trillion dollars. But that's based on looking at partnerships that exist right now, mostly big real estate companies, uh, hedge funds, uh, private equity funds, and assuming that they get this giant tax cut. The reality is that if you opened up a loophole where you can pay a 15% rate if you characterize your income as small business partnership income, a lot of wealthy people would change up their contractual uh, arrangements. You need a, you need a dynamic and, score. And, and, and reincorporate. <laughs> so I think the revenue loss could be potentially like cataclysmic, but we really have no idea so, so let me, how to model that. Let me pull this back because I do want to also bring Clinton's policies into, into the mixer. But okay. I want to say something I think is very important about the Trump policy agenda and very unique about it, which is that it is directionally opposite from Donald Trump's claims about his own policy agenda. And this is spoken to in a small way by the pass-through income issue, yes. but in a big way on taxes and on health care very particularly. So you go back into the primaries and even after the primaries, and you, you, you'll hear a couple things from Trump. He had a number of fights in debates with the other Republicans where they would say, you know, we have to repeal Obamacare, blah, 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 blah. And Donald Trump would say, we absolutely do. But where I disagree with other Republicans is I'm not going to let you die on the streets. I think the government has to take care of everybody and pay for it. And then he brought out his health care plan, which – Well, can I say he doubled down on this like again and again. Again like, and he again. He keeps saying this on 60 Minutes. He's saying I won't uh -huh. let anyone die on this. Like it – it's, and the government will pay for it. Yes. So this is like repeated throughout, like up until his speech um, just this week on Tuesday saying I'm going to have quality, reliable health care for everyone. So this right. is like not just like a one-off slip. Donald just Trump makes a, a very clear claim to government provided, funded, fully universal health insurance. And then he brings out a plan that, you know, as best we could tell, would rip health insurance from roughly 21 million people. Trump presents himself as being a much more generous Republican on health care, and he's actually a much more uh, 
cruel Republican on health care. And the same is true on his tax plan. He came out a number of times, also on 60 Minutes, if I'm remembering this correctly, and said that his plan would shock everyone because it would raise taxes on the rich. And also because a lot of reporters don't understand tax policy all that well. When the plan came out, and I'm pretty sure Matt wrote about this at the time, there were a bunch of headlines saying, because Donald Trump said his plan raised taxes on the rich, Donald Trump new plan raises taxes yeah. on the rich. And then when you looked at it, it was a massive tax cut for the rich. And there are a lot of uh, interpretations of this. One is that Donald Trump has gestures towards policy ideas. And then he had a pretty doctrinaire policy team, which he then never paid money to and they all left. But nevertheless, they created pretty standard issue Republican policies. Another is that he's a liar. Another is that um, he just doesn't know what he's talking about and changes it up depending on the day. But I do just want to note that a a difficulty with Trump is that while he does have a pretty clear policy agenda and he's not cared enough about the policy, but he does have a clear policy agenda, he has not cared enough about it to make sure that what he is saying reflects what his policies actually are. Well, and it's kind of let off. The hook in a little way. Like, so this Hugely. is something I've thought about. So I've covered the healthcare part of this where I've been watching kind of this disconnect between what he says and like, and it is, I think, one of the ways he kind of gets off the hook. Like, people don't, there's this policy document he put out in March that is a seven point healthcare plan that I started calling Trump Care that doesn't really get referenced. It like almost feels too skimpy to be called a healthcare plan because it's like short and the title of it is like make healthcare in America great again. And it almost in a weird way by not like fleshing it out by not saying, you know, by really like, you know, when you look at Clinton, there's like lots of white papers and like her plan is very specific on healthcare and how it would change tax credits and this and that. But by doing this like very, um, very broad plan, it almost seem to like give a lot of media license not to cover it seriously to say like oh well that's just outlines like that's like not a real like that's not a white paper like that's not a real thing and it's been a weird dynamic to watch in this race which i think is quite different than um the dynamic in other races i've covered like i remember covering like romney obama and there were like very specific fights then about oh does obamacare cut medicare and like they did it did and like romney was right and like we wrote blog posts about this at the old blog Ezra and i used to work at there's like, never been are, a better time than the, the romney naive, tax plan fights of 2012 those are like the naive times but then you're like we're talking about each candidate's what they talked about generally like aligned with what was on their website and like what their policy proposals were i, I think you're you're right ezra that when there isn't as much of like understanding of policy they Trump's almost created a space where his policy plans like don't get taken seriously because some of them like, you know, the building a wall or deporting all Muslims are so out there that it feels like it almost trickles over to this kind of very thin health care plan that um, that is written off as like, oh, well, that's not an actual real health care plan. So that doesn't factor into okay, the, the opposite of this is Hillary Clinton, Indeed. who has. Uh, so I found a AP statistic is from September. So it's a couple months old. But. They found that Hillary Clinton had released 65 policy fact sheets totaling more than 112,000 words of detail, where Donald Trump had seven totaling 9,000 words. That is the gap in policy detail between these two candidates. So Dylan Matthews has a great piece that by the time this podcast is out, will be up at Vox. And he really goes through Clinton's policy agenda. And, and what he shows, I think, very conclusively is – 
Clinton's reputation for incrementalism, which I think is to some degree a function of running against, on the one hand, a a literal democratic socialist in the primary, then on the other hand, Donald Trump, uh, who wants to make Mexico build a wall in the general, is very undeserved. Uh, Dylan frames what she has as, uh, in a term that I think is pretty good, a minimum viable product for social democracy in America. And, And the point he's making is that if you compare America to Nordic countries, there are a couple of places where our social compact doesn't exist, but theirs is, is quite significant. Um, one is around uh, maternity, paid maternity leave. Another is around child care uh, and particularly pre-K. And Clinton really goes forward to try to fill in these sort of family-oriented gaps in, in the structure. And, and another is around uh, college tuition. And between these three or four things, what Clinton is doing is actually quite radically changing the compact between America and its citizens. In a, in a Hillary Clinton world, a world where she was able to enact her agenda, it would be the state's duty to make sure that if you made, I forget exactly what the income cutoff is, 125000 I think. I think that's right. If you made less than 125000 you would get free tuition to a state college. If you have a child, you get paid maternity leave. And... The government guarantees you a certain amount of pre-K and guarantees that you will not be spending more than 10% of your income on child care. And those are a series of promises that other countries make that we do not make right now. Clinton's plan does not go all the way to where a France is or a Denmark is on these points. And she is much more oriented towards means testing and doing programs that are beginning as opposed to sort of the full you know, wraparound cradle to grave welfare state. But it is nevertheless a, a very, very ambitious, expansive agenda to say nothing of all the other things in it from public options and Medicare buy-in and infrastructure spending and tax increases on the rich. I mean, there's a lot going on in the Clinton policy world. But yeah, she has, is from the perspective of particularly children and people who have children, really trying to fill in pieces of the welfare state that don't exist in America but are common everywhere else. I think that there's an important thing that, that, that you mentioned there that, that's worth dwelling on a, a little bit, which is that most people who produce and consume this sort of like wonky policy news and engage in like high-level ideological debates are at a, a reasonable level of, of economic comfort in life. And for those people, there is this yawning gap between life in the United States and life in Northern Europe in which we pay uh, sort of upper middle class professional types in the United States pay drastically lower taxes than similarly situated Danish people pay and also receive drastically fewer government services, Um, you know, and Clinton's plan does not alter that, right, by design, right? She feels across the board that asking non-wealthy Americans to pay higher taxes is basically a non-starter. And that means that while she can raise a lot of tax revenue, she can't raise like a Nordic amount of tax revenue. But she wants to do all of the things that a Nordic welfare state does, right? Take care of tiny babies, take care of sick people, take care of college students, all those ambitions, but she doesn't have that much revenue. So how does she do it? Well, she does it by targeting the assistance at people who have real financial need. And so one 
upshot of that is that this very dramatic transformation that she would enact in the lives of economically struggling people who would get out of nowhere a um, huge amount of financial assistance with childcare, pre-K programs, college tuition, uh, boost in their income through earned income tax credit is a little bit invisible to the like kinds of people who make programming decisions on cable television or who edit even like left-wing journals, you, you know, that kind of thing. So that it's a – I sort – I understand the politics. I understand the political thinking behind Clinton's plans. But it also creates a weird situation in which she doesn't get the credit for doing this kind of stuff because she would not be providing these social services to the kinds of people who decide, like, what is it we should talk about when we talk about politics, whereas, whereas Bernie Sanders would have done that, right? Like, like my taxes would go up, like, a lot under Bernie Sanders. And then in exchange, I would get a lot of new social services, uh, whereas I would be uh, spared from uh, almost anything Clinton wants to do on the revenue side and then conversely, like, not receive very much because you'd be deep into the phase-out curves of, of everything. Um, but to the extent that we care about uh, poor people, which I think many people claim to, uh, particularly <laughs> to the extent that we care about the uh, economic anxieties of working class Americans in struggling communities, which has often been a subject of discussion during this campaign. It, it's like worth noting that there would be a truly drastic turnabout in the financial fortunes of lower income families with children, right? That for middle class people and or childless people, there would not be a big change. But, you know, if you're if you're poor – and have kids, it would be like really night and day if this stuff were enacted, which of course it probably wouldn't be. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, see you later. <laughs> yeah, so, so that's, that's that <laughs> policy. I thought Dylan's piece was great and really brought together a lot of these things in a way I hadn't thought through. And, you know, I think you kind of almost have like the reverse of what you're saying on Trump, where Trump, everything is like big and like everything is like declared as like build a wall or like kick out everyone or like these big declarations. And that one of the things Dylan pointed out that I hadn't really thought through as clearly was that, you know, it is not Hillary often gets the words incrementalist and pragmatist often get lumped together that, you know, if one has been pragmatic, one is often being incremental as well, that they're taking smaller steps when he kind of points out that like this is like not like a small step that we're talking about. Like when you take like all these kind of pragmatic steps that, like you said, like respond to these, um, to, to not wanting to go full, full Nordic or whatever you might want to call it uh, with our social welfare system, that that often gets lumped in as incremental because it's taking kind of a more pragmatic approach to um, welfare systems in the U.S. when the two are actually can be quite distinct. And I think one of the things that becomes like hard to wrap your mind around as American is you kind of like look at like Sweetly, like a Nordic countries, you even look at Canada and you think like they have this thing, like there's this thing in Canada that like we don't have in the U.S. And that's just like this big, massive system that exists when, you know, a lot of those were like built incrementally, too. Like if you look at the Canadian single payer system, for example, like that started with one province deciding that they want to do universal health care. And it kind of builds out from there in a series of other programs. And I, I think looking at these fully built ones, we just kind of say like, oh, well, you know, that's the thing. Like that's like 
what a social welfare looks at. And it can be hard from this vantage point to see that there are a lot of different policies that come together in different ways to like add up to this larger thing that we see in other countries. Social Security and Medicare in the U.S. both have that have mm-hmm. that quality and have that progression too. Something that I, I do think is interesting here is that Hillary Clinton, I, I really like the point you and Dylan make about incrementalism and pragmatism getting conflated. But another piece of it is that Donald Trump has very few policies on his website. Um, last I looked, it was seven. It might be a couple more now. Uh, and and that, when I looked, he had seven and two of them were repeated. It was like the wall and immigration. He's were up to there. 13. I oh, think. so. OK, there you go. Anyway, but what he has done, I think, quite effectively is emphasized a couple of them. When you think about Donald Trump, you feel intuitively that you have knowledge of what he would focus on coming into office. That that knowledge might be wrong, right? He might come into office and do something totally different. But, you know, Donald Trump stands for the wall. He stands for a shutdown of Muslim travel to the United States. He stands for ripping up and doing different kinds of trade deals. And, and people kind of get that. Hillary Clinton has so much and she talks about so much of it that one reason I think people discount its scope and ambition is that the sheer mass makes clear that not all of this will happen. I mean, to some degree, very little of it would likely happen with a Republican House. But so people don't have a good sense of what she would focus on. So I want to note two things on this. One is that uh, I, I do think she's been fairly clear that if uh, she comes in with a Republican Congress of any kind, even a Republican House, she's going to be looking to make a deal that combines uh, corporate tax reform, particularly international corporate tax reform, with a large infrastructure investment in the U.S. But also, I think it would be something that would be wise for the Clinton campaign to do, which is the the place where I do think they have a sort of unique emphasis in American politics. And it comes, I think, a little bit from Clinton's historical interest, potentially something she's sensitized to because of her gender. You know, she is really focused on family and child policy and has a, a, a basket of ideas there that are a genuine change in the American state. I would actually like to get the signal that that was where they were going to focus, because to me, that is really the place where their policy is most interesting. I think that we have a system that is very poorly built for modern families. We have a system, a labor market and a um, and just a, a social safety net that is really still built for families that have a single parent, that they're single parent households. And we've just forced dual earner households to adapt. And I think that one thing that Clinton is doing is trying to modernize that. And it, I think it often gets talked about as a uh, sort of a social policy, right? Like a nice thing to do. But it's also a way of raising labor market participation by women. It's also a way of making it more possible for people to take economic risks. And and I think a lot of that is important, particularly if you believe the trends we are seeing around, you know, the direction that that family formation and and and, and labor participation are going in this country. I also think Stepping back and looking at this morass of policy documents and looking through, I've had the opportunity to browse some some WikiLeaks about like how some of these things came together. And I've watched many, many, many Hillary Clinton speeches over the course of this campaign. I think there's a profoundly like wrongheaded thought about politics undergirding a lot of this, which is that she seems to feel that what she needed to do during the campaign was write Clinton-Kane transition team 
white papers that take into account the objective political situation as it stands in the winter of 2016, 2017. And then she needs to take those transition team statements and hand them to her speechwriters and force them to like write a speech off this like dog's breakfast of like little thing And the way you run for president is you're supposed to sit with your speechwriters and maybe your pollsters and stuff and talk about what does Hillary Clinton want to do for America and then write some speeches about that. And then if you win the election, you give the speeches over to the transition team and you tell them that they now have the problem of making a dog's breakfast of specific policy proposals out of your commitments to the American people, right? So like you talk about how the evolution of Social Security, right – from what it was in 1933 uh, to what we know it now took like 20 years. There were a million legislative changes. The actual program that was enacted was actually really small, left out huge numbers of people. But if you look at Franklin Roosevelt's speech proposing Social Security, it's not this like tedious thing about like 11 carve outs. (laughs) I'm like, you have to go look at my white paper, right? He said that he wanted a system that everyone would pay into and that would provide retirement security for elderly Americans. He did not get that. What he got was, who even knows? You know, like it (laughs) had to go through the committee ringer and white supremacists didn't want it and there were fiscal concerns. And and like, but of people, they created a program that was called Social Security, which is what he said the retirement security program should be called. And eventually we built the program that he said we should build, right? Um, and and that's good. And I think that's like how politics actually works. And that there was this – you see uh, emails in, in WikiLeaks where they're wrestling with Bernie Sanders early in the campaign. They're like really upset because Bernie is promising that he's going to do things that really he can't do. But not that he's promising to do impossible things, right? It's not that like Bernie was saying, well, we're going to have like weekend trips to Mars, right? Bernie was just saying he was going to enact legislation that like everyone who knows Congress knows Congress wouldn't pass. And they were like, really, they were like, they didn't know what to do about this. (laughs) And and you got to say on some level, like, that was not cheating on his part to just like lay out aspirational strategies. Like Barack Obama did not pass the climate change proposals that he campaigned on in 2008. And that's because Congress didn't want to pass them. But like, that's okay to say he should have gone back in time and been like, we're going to do nothing on this in Congress, but there's going to be a bunch of weird regulations like that would have been dumb. Like, that's just not how you how you campaign for office. It's totally okay that he ran saying what he wanted to accomplish on climate change. And then he did his best to to accomplish those things. Like you shouldn't lie in your campaign. But I, I think there's like nothing wrong with overpromising and that their unwillingness to sit down and say, I think that the American government needs to take into account the needs of modern families and like say what that would entail in her opinion. And then like leave the question of what bills do we pass to like be worked out in in Congress. I think it was a really profound mistake and has created a excessively confusing portrait of like, what does Hillary Clinton stand for? 
I I don't think you're giving her like a fair shake for, you know, writing out details in her policies. Like when I think of, let's say, like this basket of like family policies, I think like you have this push for paid maternity leave and like universal pre-K. Like those are like significant ideas and they do have like contours to them. But but I like those stand out to me as like big things that if they were pursued would likely get like watered down and some people would get left out of the maternity leave and maybe it'd get scaled back to like fewer weeks or like less pay. It kind of actually ties me back to like the Trump conversation we were having where I feel like uh, on one side, like Trump has decided to like make these big promises that have like nothing to do with these very thin policies that he has he has laid out on his website. But, you know, Clinton has like all this detail and it seems like almost I don't know, like unfairly like dinging her for having that detail when there is like a larger ambition to these things that that they're working on that seem to be like I don't like I don't hear her like maternity message. is like, you know, so like granular and like, well, we're going to do it for these people and not that people like it still feels like there's a top level agenda item there that would be like a big add on to the welfare state. I actually think maternity leave is an example of of her doing this right. I, it's not bad that she has details, but what's great about her maternity leave plan is that like she thinks there should be paid family leave for everyone. And she thinks it shouldn't just be for moms. It should also be for dads. And it shouldn't just be for births. It should be for adoptions. It should be for elder care. And so she just says all that. You know, and then the plan fills it in with details because she's not sloppy and she's not a liar. Um, but she's written. She she has a, like an ambitious plan there. Um, the the pre-K plan, though, and, and some of the other ones there are, are it feels to me like they're like two inside their own head. It like doesn't stay instead of saying like what America is supposed to look like in the pre-K-topia. It has like a lot of like nitty gritty, like how are we going to make this affordable enough when like Congress isn't going to pass any pre-K plan. Like it doesn't matter. It would be interesting to educate people about like what her thought is on this subject rather than just on like what some guys at Center for American Progress thought would be a good sliding scale to generate enough affordability at at a low enough price because like it doesn't matter. Although one of the things about Clinton and one of the things about her whole policy agenda is that she tends to create policies through a process of wide consultation with relevant stakeholders. I think a little bit here we're talking about her speeches even more than her policies. And one thing she is doing in those speeches is calling out specific things for all of these different stakeholders, which has the downside of making for boring speeches. But the upside of pretty broad-based both coalition and interest group – I'm sorry, uh, interest group and um, advocacy – uh, groups being bought into what she is proposing. Now, as you say, I am skeptical that a Republican Congress is, is going to move forward on any of this. But look, the Republican Party is plausibly melting down. So who knows what kinds of governing equilibria Clinton could end up seeing during the course of one or two terms. And and it's why I do think it is important to kind of see them as having very, very different policy architectures and visions because correctly they do. A point you've been making, Matt, is that Clinton made a choice in this election to run against Donald Trump as an unfit aberration. Yes. Right. She chose to emphasize the ways in which he was maybe a dangerous temperament for the presidency, was easily baited, was reckless, was confrontational. She did not and and similarly he did not, by the way, run a campaign really trying to define him on policy terms in contrast to her on policy terms. 
And one, I think, byproduct of that is it just people really don't know what they're going to get with either of them. Now, they may not get very much at all because the basic mechanisms of American governance are broken. But to the extent that over a period of time in American uh, in the American presidency, they will take different opportunities to move different balls forward. Uh, I do think people have missed how much of a quite conservative Republican Trump is on economics and also how much of a quite liberal Democrat Clinton is on economics and domestic policy. I think this is particularly true with Clinton where I think a lot of liberals have an, have an impression of Clinton formed from foreign policy in the post-Iraq war period and then in contrast to Bernie Sanders on domestic policy, both of which have created a misleading impression of centrism. But Hillary Clinton is quite liberal on these issues and has a quite aggressive vision. You may think that's good. You may think it's bad. But it is – but she's going to be trying to push things in farther to the left and farther in a social democratic direction than uh, I think even many of her supporters quite realize. I would also say if we happen to have any any young people in, in the audience that, that one thing that happens with, with the Clinton campaign that gives me whiplash and makes me feel like, a, like an old man, honestly, is that the – Terms of debate inside the Democratic Party have transformed extremely rapidly over the past 10 years. And what was in my uh, youth of, you know, being, uh, I don't know, in my late 20s, what was defined as the centrist wing of the Democratic Party has simply gone into non-existence. And the policy proposals that were considered the left of the Democratic Party are what Hillary Clinton is now running on. And there is this uh, new, much more left-wing agenda, which is which has gained a lot of steam. So sometimes you hear very high-level discussions that amount to people um, – simply having different reference points. You know, so like I will say Hillary Clinton is a very liberal Democrat that like when she was a senator, her DW nominate score put her in the leftmost 15 percent of the caucus, that she is running on this like down the line progressive agenda in which she wants to move the policy status quo to the left on every single issue that she discusses like blah, 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 blah. There's like nothing in there at all about the urgent need to bend the cost curve on healthcare spending. Um, you know, it, it's it's a much more uh, aggressively left program than we really saw from Obama in, in 2008. It has zero nods whatsoever to like an old DLC vision of public policy. And then other people just kind of like take this like Obama era reset for granted and just say, well, look, there's like an argument between Hillary Clinton and Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, and she is on the more conservative side of that argument. So like she is a centrist Democrat. And um, I don't know. That's like one of those imponderable semantic disputes. But to people who were not like enmeshed in internal Democratic Party policy controversies in the mid-aughts, just like you should know if you are out there that like in the relatively recent past, like dinosaurs stalked the land in, in, <laughs> in the Democratic Party who thought that proposing a universal health care program of any kind was a mistake, right? Well, who yeah. thought that Democrats should try to cut public spending. One of the weird things going on here too is like – Universal coverage has been like one of these quests of the liberal movement for decades that they've like not been able to achieve and like is something that was huge in like in the 2008 campaign. And 
is like such a clear thing to talk about, about wanting health care for everyone in such like a way the United States is quite different from other countries. And that's not really like a thing that can be in Clinton's wheelhouse anymore. Like Obama passed Obamacare. And like this is like this big liberal policy that all of a sudden, you know, she talks about changing the tax credits and like this and that. But they're pretty granular changes to the ACA that um, I don't remember the exact contours of at this moment, but they're not as memorable as like make healthcare available to everyone. So I think that also colors like the last time we had a new Democratic candidate for president, he he was running on this very clear agenda of pursuing universal coverage and then somewhat unexpectedly was able to pass the Affordable Care Act and pass this law that a lot of um, his predecessors has not been able to. And that really like takes out this big thing that was very kind of like this plank that was so central and easy to understand that no longer is like a thing you can like you can talk about changing the ACA tax credits, but that's not quite as exciting about, you know, ending pre-existing conditions and creating this insurance option for everyone. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that's definitely true. Um, but But I mean, again, I think people don't just don't get that, like, it was a controversial proposition at one time. Like, should there be any kind of universal health care idea. Like if you look at John Kerry's 2004 health care yeah. plan, it would be considered so comically reactionary. Or Howard Dean's. Oh, yes. Or Howard Dean's by by the standards of the Clinton versus Sanders yeah. debate, right? Um, in, in 2009, when, when Obama was already president, like one big question was, should we do something to reduce carbon dioxide emissions? Most Democrats said, yes, we should do something. Many Democrats, though, said, no, we shouldn't. Like Evan Bayh, he did not want to sign on to Obama's cap-and-trade bill, and he did not have an alternative proposal. <laughs> he, he thought about it. I mean, there's articles about his politics, you know, the, the yeah. various ins and outs on it. But, like, his view was just, nope, let's not do anything. Whereas now, I mean, again, Clinton's, like, yes, let's do many things is considered the more right democratic position and like the true progressive view is that there should be no fossil fuel extraction ever. Although an interesting dimension of this, I think, and, and I don't, I'm not sure this is true, but I think it is, is that the Democratic Party and politicians speaking to these much grander hopes and creating uh, much more ambition within the electorate, sort of persuading the electorate that much more is possible, I think also has uh, a tendency to create more disappointment. Yes. Uh, I think if John Kerry had been elected, had done anything at all, it would have been a surprise given the agenda he was running on, which was like, let's build firehouses here instead of in Baghdad. Uh, Whereas... Barack Obama, you know, promised a wholesale change of American politics, got a tremendous amount done, but also left a lot of liberals feeling that more was promised, like immigration reform that didn't happen and, and that that was a real letdown. And I think Clinton stands to potentially reap a worse version of that, where there's even more in the agenda um, and even less of it is likely to pass through. And, and I think that will be a, an interesting tension between the Democratic – between top-level Democratic politicians and the base right now, as the base becomes persuaded that more wholesale change is necessary, and as kind of table stakes for running in a Democratic primary become higher, uh, it's not the case that it's getting easier to pass big laws through American political institutions. If anything, it's probably getting harder. And so the the, the gap between expectation and reality might widen. Well, and some of this has to do with the growing sort of demographic segmentation of the electorate, right? Um, If you are uh, under 30 or black or Latino, 
you probably do not spend a ton of time talking with white people over the age of 50. Um, I personally don't spend a great deal of time talking with white people over the age of 50. There are very many such people in the United States, and they themselves probably do not spend a lot of time talking to young Asian women about what they think about the issues. And so people, you know, and we see this on a number of dimensions, right? I mean, there's the book, uh, The Big Sort, about neighborhoods that people live in. Uh, Facebook lets people live more and more in their own sort of media bubbles and, and things like that. So you can – it's very easy to exist in a world where it is common sense that climate change is the most urgent problem that we face as a nation, that uh, police violence against young men of color is a very pressing social issue, that uh, Northern Europe is a very successful social model that we ought to aspire to and in which you not only know a lot of people socially who agree with all of those things, but your understanding of what is in the news is stories that reflect all of those kinds of opinions um, and just not really realize like how many people there are who don't agree with any of that stuff. Because I, I, I do feel uh, w when I see sort of commentary of th these internecine struggles, I, I think a lot of people start to um, – Simply discount disagreement and persuasion as relevant variables in, in American politics. It's true that elected officials have a fair amount of autonomy to pursue their agendas. And it's true that, you know, lobbyist influence matters, elite ideas matter. But it's just also true that public opinion matters. If the median American had the opinions of the median 30-year-old, like – Things would be different. Different policies would be passed. But they don't, right? And it is simply challenging. You can't just go inside the bubble of people who already accept that climate change is an urgent problem and then debate internally how drastic should your aspirations be. You have to address the fact that many people uh, don't think that. I don't have like a great idea exactly for what it is you, you do to do that. But the existence of a large block of opinion that hears Donald Trump stand up and say that climate change is a Chinese hoax designed to cripple American manufacturing and they don't immediately laugh at him, like that is the problem. The problem isn't Trump per se. It's the fact that like a huge swath of people thinks that's like a credible idea to have when I think it's crazy. I bet most of the people who listen to the weeds think it's crazy. But like we are just not the kind of overwhelming preponderance that you would have to be to build a political consensus for, for drastic change. We'll get I'm, there, though. We're building our audience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's why you got to share the podcast. Yeah. Fascinating uh, problem for the next president. But 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 as you vote, think about these policy, uh, these different policy ideas. Maybe in the inaugural address, Hillary can recommend the weeds and then we'll change. That'd be good around. for listenership, yeah. I think. So next week, people are going to vote on Tuesday. We are going to record on Wednesday morning. And then later that day, you will have fresh weeds with which to consider the outcome. <laughs> Definitely go vote. Uh, whoever you are voting for, it is an important thing to to actually do. And and go vote. This is a, a theme, and, and I know that it's not always reflected in our topic choice, but go figure out what your state and local election measures are and vote on them. They are very important, and, and they, they often get dismissed and derided and overlooked, but you can have a big effect on them. They will they will change a lot of lives. So, so definitely uh, make sure to not stop at the top of the ballot. 
listen to the weeds as you walk to your local polling place. Share it with people as you walk to your local polling place. As you stand place. in line in your polling exactly. place, recommend your favorite policy podcast. And, and, and thank our producer, Afim Shapiro, and Vox.com and Panoply for putting on this wonderful podcast, which will be back uh, with all of you fine people next week.